Hey, Gang Grow Retain, what's going on? We recently started a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative in Gang Grow Retain. We have our friend Lauren Mecca, who is helping us lead that charge. And one aspect that we wanted to do was uh, to just bring awareness and discussion into our podcast. So one way we're doing that is we partnered with Matt Miskowski, who is a customer success management leader and vice president of the EMEA region for SAP. He has put together a panel of experts. They've gone to talk through racial diversity in customer success. And so we wanted to bring you that audio uh, here today. So uh, you'll be listening to Matt, who helps lead the discussion with three other professional lead- pro- professionals in the customer success space uh, around racial diversity. Welcome to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. I'm actually joined by three guests to discuss racial diversity in the world of customer success. So moving on to the guest today, please welcome Paul Ferguson, Justine Lawrence Pickett, and Alex Farmer. Um, can I ask each of you to give a 30-second introduction on who you are, uh, what you're currently doing, brief history of your career around the world of customer success? So um, obviously, we will start with ladies first. Um, Justine, um, go for the introduction. Thank you, Matt. Um, so hi, I'm Justine. I've been in CS, I would say, for the last three years, but I've come from a um, fully sort of customer-centric background, doing things from customer support, customer experience, and then landing in CS, which is where I fell in love. Um, I am starting a new role um, soon, which is very exciting, so I'll be able to kind of take all my CS knowledge and apply it there. But I've come from running uh, customer success teams in um, high-growth startups. Fantastic. Thanks, Justine. Um, Let's go to Paul Ferguson. Hi, Matt. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Paul Ferguson. I'm Director of Customer Success at Tanium. So I've been in uh, lifecycle and adoption services type roles for the last eight years, uh, with the last five years specifically in customer success. Uh, Today, I'm working with uh, a couple of very, very large customers, and I'm helping to embed what I do at Tanium, what we do at Tanium, into their business processes. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Uh, and finally, um, Alex. Hello, hello. Um, yes, my name is Alex Farmer. I, uh, you can probably tell, originally from San Francisco Bay Area, but based out here in the UK. Um, I've been doing customer success for about six years now. Um, my experience, similar to Justine, is in high-growth startups, building customer success teams. Um, and I'm currently the uh, vice president of European sales and customer success at a company called Incopro. Um, and uh, really looking forward to this conversation today. Excellent. Thank you, all three of you, for your introductions. So um, let's go back to the 25th of May this year. Um, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, dies in Minneapolis at the hands of the very people who should be there to protect him and other citizens of that city, the police. Um, I think it's fair to say that it restirred some immensely powerful feelings and emotions the world over as a number of cities and their inhabitants protested. In the days that followed, we saw responses from people in person and online from companies, from sporting teams, at sporting events, and much more. At that time, it caused me, and probably several others, to take a long, hard look at themselves. For me, it was both me looking personally and professionally. I managed a team of 75 customer success managers in EMEA for SAP. I don't mind admitting that I don't have anywhere near enough diversity in my team. And when I look at myself, I realise that I am part of the problem as much as I am part of the solution. It really was at that time of self-reflection that I started to think about a conversation I had with one of our guests today, Paul Ferguson, earlier this year, um, where we started discussing racial diversity in customer success. So fast forward, um, here we are. I finally get round to having three exceptional guests on my podcast. 
Um, and I really just want to kind of start by thinking about that moment on the 25th of May, um, or around that moment when George Floyd is, in my eyes, murdered. Um, I'm going to start with Paul. What was your overarching emotion or reaction or feeling to this? And I think, Paul, it's fair to say, and I hope you don't mind, that you're probably of an age where you have probably seen this way too often, and I think once is too often. Um, so what were your general overarching feelings and reactions at that time? Well, it was a lot of things, uh, Matt. I mean, I uh, when I first heard about it, I didn't actually watch the video because I didn't want to believe it was happening. And then I saw it because, you know, I just felt like I had to. And I think when I first saw it, it was, um, I mean, it was just sadness, really. I couldn't help thinking that um, uh, there was a guy, an ordinary guy, that was lost to his family for, for, for no reason, right? And um, it was just the sadness and the shock at that loss. I, I have to say I wasn't surprised because um, there's a, a number of people there, Treyon Martin, for example, and lots of others that have met a similar fate. And the fact that there are a lot of names here of people that have suffered in the same way. So so it was just sadness. And then that, that kind of turned into anger. And, and the anger came along uh, when I started hearing some of the reactions of other people to what had happened. And then what had happened afterwards in terms of the protests, the demonstrations, the rioting, and, and just the fact that a lot of people out there actually didn't really understand what the protest was about. So that really disappointed me. But then it moved forward to hope. And the hope came along uh, for me when I saw the types of people that were out there protesting, the fact that it was happening across the world, and the fact that it wasn't just black people demonstrating, it was diverse, it was a quite a diverse group of people. So it was just a bit of everything, really. Okay, thanks, Paul. Um, Justine, um, no offence to Paul, but I would say that you're probably a few years younger than, than him. Um, <laughs> not that that potentially impacts the difference in feelings, but I, I think Paul probably has seen maybe a little bit more um, and experienced it maybe um, more frequently. What what was your reaction and response to, to what you saw and what you heard? So it's interesting um, that we talk about Paul and saying that he's um, seen it a lot more because actually my initial first reaction when I heard about it was it's happened again. Like I wasn't surprised at all. Um, I do believe that recently, you know, there's been complete desensitization because we just know this is always happening. Um, and similarly to Paul, I did force myself to watch the video. I think, especially because it happened across the pond, it's really easy for us to um, kind of pull away from it and not feel like it's happening to me personally. But watching the video, it really hit home. And watching the video, the range of emotions that I went through in one video was quite surprising to me from kind of sadness to then genuinely feeling heartbroken to then feeling really angry as well um, and not really understanding kind of what to do with these emotions and then seeing it blow up globally um, Paul talks about hope and I I will be honest and say that I I was surprised I didn't think that you know everyone cared so much and actually that made me that then gave me hope in a sense, okay, we can do something about this. I think I'm just so used to racism being so kind of embedded into our culture and just becomes a way of life. I actually got a feeling, okay, we might be able to make some changes for good this time. You, you touched on something there that I find really interesting, um, the, the, the hope piece, because, and I know Paul mentioned it as well, I, I, see, the, I see the world now 
as as more more split um, mm. and more I don't even know the right word more split than than ever before, especially around things that different yeah that differentiate people. Um, mm. but, but with that has created I would say greater hope within different groups. So, but I, th I think it almost feels like it's a just like it's really hard to explain that as much as we're probably more separated now than we've ever been in, that I remember but actually for the for the separation for half of that separation we're actually probably more progressive more full of hope than ever before uh, and I don't know if that makes sense but that's my kind of overarching feeling when you talk about hope um, Alex no. sorry Justin go on no I was just going to say because I think um you know as a as a black person, I feel like the world is starting to see and really understand how we've felt and things that we've gone through, whereas before we probably didn't think that people could connect on that level. And I think that's where this kind of hope comes from, that people are actually starting to understand and also care to understand as well, which is really important. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've, I've got some thoughts around that, but I'm careful that I don't want to kind of take over my own podcast. But <laughs> um, so, uh, Alex, um, you, in your introduction, spoke about your... Um, being brought up and, and uh, born in, in the US and to a certain extent I imagine and I don't know what time, what, what age you, you left the US but um, I guess that you've had some experience of that more closely to you being based in the US um, what, what was your thoughts and reaction to what happened and some of your background and history maybe sure. of this yeah um, you know I, I think it's similar to, to Paul and Justine your, your comments as well I mean yes you know I so I left the U.S. about six, seven years ago. Um, so you know, I grew up, you know, spent my kind of adolescence and in, in the in the United States. And yes, from San Francisco, you know, left coast, as they say. But um, you know, for me, it, it's quite similar. It just felt like another letdown in a long history of letdowns. You know, and and um, I was also very surprised that this was kind of the match that lit the tinderbox. You know, I mean, I without getting kind of too political, you know, there have been mass shootings in America that you thought were were finally enough to inspire some type of collective action and change. That that, that frankly, as someone who, in some ways, you know, feels a little bit like a representative of uh, of America living in a foreign country, um, were hugely underwhelming. You know, so I didn't have my hopes up for things to change. It was just you know another one um, in a long list of names. Um, so that was my kind of initial reaction. You know, desensitization was a word that was used. I, I, I get that, but also kind of futility. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, which is collective action, trying to push for change and expecting it to actually change. But there's been so many times where it hasn't. So surprised in a good way, you know, that this was led to and, and is leading to, it's still going on, the largest, you know, collective action in the history of America, uh, which is what this was. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, we won't get into it, I think, people are angry about a lot of things, not just this, you know, as is in the context of a COVID-19 lockdown and other things. And maybe that humanizes people more and brings them together or, 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 you know, is more collective frustration. You know, people were hurting more generally as well. And maybe that was the reason why this was the match that lit off the tinderbox, as I say. And, you know, to your point, Matt, I, I think, you know, you, it always strikes me as a pendulum, you know, you were talking about polarization and it feels like, you know, political action is, is it swings one way and then it requires people to kind of yank the pendulum the other way, you know? And, and I think that's maybe what this was is that people were not satisfied with what they're seeing and, and wanted to kind of pull the pendulum in a better direction, a more progressive direction. Um, but, you know, I, I, 
stayed up late, watched CNN, you know, watched the LAPD beat protesters who were kind of standing there. You know, it's live on television, and it's just a mix of anger, embarrassment, and shame. But you know, the positive, um, the well, the exceeding of expectations that's happened is is the total collective action that's occurred. Which you know, frankly, I think I joined Paul and Justine in not having expected. Okay. So just, just just to add to that, actually, I think just on the anger piece, mm-hmm. I think the thing that really made me angry during that time was um, and just putting a UK spin on it for a moment sure. was that the general perception of people in the UK here was that actually it's not as bad here. That sort of thing don't happen to which, you know, I always say to them, well, have you heard of a guy called Rashan Charles or have you heard of Cherry Grace or have you heard of Mark Duggan? You know, there are a list, a long list of names of individuals here in the UK, you know, black people that have met a violent death at the hands of the authorities, right? And because those stories are not known, people here think it's not a problem, and it is. And that was that was kind of fueling my anger. Yes. So why, um, so why are those names less well known, and those incidents less well known in the UK? I think it's quite a simple one. If you um, you know, if you look at, I don't know, if you look at someone, I'll give you an example. If you look at someone like Alton Manning, he, he lost his life in the 90s. Um, if you look at what happened with George Floyd, it was, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. I think the main difference now is that things are being captured on phones. Mm-hmm. And so it's yeah. very easy to get it out there. Right. And I think a lot of those names I mentioned, um, they've happened at a time where um, it hasn't been captured you know you may get the occasional grainy footage in a police station somewhere which is what happened to a lady called sarah reed but i think the main difference is is that uh things are reported more now because they're being caught on camera and they're being shared through social media okay and justine um and alex anything to, to add to that in terms of maybe the the piece around the uk obviously uh, said alex that the, the natural thing from you is you can see both sides of that coming from from the us it, does, does what Paul say they resonate with you in terms of the social media aspect or, or is there yeah. something more to it? Well, social media is absolutely a factor, you know, and I think, you know, obviously I'm here in the UK, I'm watching protests happen in the UK as well. And, and I think one of the things that's happened, one of the results of the protests is you have your counter protesters that come out and, you know, spew their hate and, and, you know, try and kind of pick up, pick apart the videos and justify and stand on the side of police. And, and, you know, it, it's all kind of comes from the same root, you know, which is but 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 these protests in support of black lives and Black Lives Matter have brought out those people that maybe in the UK we didn't think existed or we didn't think were brave, you know, where we're not brave, excuse me, um, you know, uh, bold enough to say it out loud. But they are, you know, so so I think one of the I'll talk about it a little bit later. You know, I'm from San Francisco, as I say, the left coast, but it, it's definitely an issue in, in liberal America as well. You know, and, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But this, I think, has brought out for people. The fact that um, you know this exists everywhere, and I think that's part of the reason why there's now this collective consensus or almost normalization of, of this conversation. You know, because it, it, I think Justine, it was you that mentioned. You know, this is not necessarily a conversation that that we'd be having in kind of the mainstream business um, mm-hmm. uh, vernacular, um, but it is now because I think we see people coming out of the woodwork that still exist and feel, in some ways, justified in speaking up. And it's 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 uh, I think bringing more people onto the side of this kind of prog- progressive collective action. Yeah. Um, sorry, Justin. Did you want to? No, I was just going to say. I felt. I feel like it's um, empowered sort of voices everywhere. And so, just like you're saying, Alex, you just you didn't. I, I believe that we all kind of knew it probably was there, but we just 
didn't know for sure. But now that it's happened and all these kind of protests are happening everywhere and lots of groups are coming out and you're finding out new names of groups that have been fighting for this for a long time, um, you've just got that awareness. And I think the video helped. It, was a, it wasn't staged, but that video, if you can't watch that video and not, like, not feel anything towards George Floyd, then in my opinion, you're not human. Because that's when you, you, felt the, you felt his pain. And no matter what had happened, he didn't deserve to die like that. And it, for me, it was the, the police officers who stood there. And they, I felt that there was some sort of pride in what they were doing. And then when he was pushed onto a stretcher and how they, on their faces, there was just no emotion. They just kind of mm. jumped in the car and drove away like nothing had ever happened. And that, that shocked me because I'd never seen anything like that. You know, sometimes you see the police officers on TVs later once they've kind of been spoken to and they look sad. But in that moment, when you saw straight the reactions to just basically murdering someone it it gave you kind of chills and you thought wow that could have been me yeah i i, I agree that was that was the thing that really hit me um mm. as much as what happened to, to george floyd and and his death but the look of zero regret zero remorse yeah. lack of yeah. any kind of emotion within those faces mm. was was paralyzing um look uh the, the, the podcast is a, a customer success one. Um, and while I know and respect and understand that racism is a very wide, diverse topic, um, I did want to try and explore it to some extent today, specifically around work and, and the industry that we've chosen to, to work in, which is customer success. Um, so let's start with work. Um, and it would be interesting to know your experiences, your thoughts around racism, either um, at work, either directly or indirectly involving you, um, either through conscious or unconscious bias. And th this is something I've had some pretty extensive conversations with my friends um, uh, around that, that I have definitely not understood and um, respected uh, in enough detail, the, the unconscious bias element um, that I don't think I will ever know and will ever understand. I think me and Paul spoke about that um, when we were doing the briefing call for this a few weeks ago. Um, so what kind of experiences have all of you had with regards to racism at work, either through unconscious or, or, or conscious bias? Um, Paul, I'll start with you again. Okay. Um, well, I think kind of the most obvious examples for me are, um, I mean, I've worked in, in tech, since 1998 right so i've been around it a while and um <laughs> one of the things that consistently happens is i get mistaken for the other black guy in the office yeah i, I do right um so that's something that's happened pretty much throughout my my working life in tech i think the other the other examples are things like um i think some people um are kind of confusing uh banter with racism and and just to give you an example of that i was doing a i was doing a night flight a business flight and one of my colleagues was at the other end of the plane to me and i went down to catch up with my colleague who had had a few drinks it was a night flight so the lights were off and uh he kind of asked me to smile because he couldn't see me um and yeah and there's and there's 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 kind of there's lots of other stuff as well i mean there's a there's all i sat next to someone in a meeting a few years ago and uh, and he used a figure of speech um which you'd probably know for describing something kind of not quite right with the situation 
And the phrase he used included a pile of wood and the N-word. And when I called him out on it, um, basically everyone else in the room jumped to his defense, actually, and assured me that he didn't mean it and he wasn't a racist. Not that type um, of guy. Not that type of guy, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, those are some of the... Uh, those are some of the examples. I won't hog it because I'm sure the others have got uh, stories they're going to tell. But those are the ones that jumped out just as you asked the question, uh, Matt. And uh, and, I, and I will come to to Justine next. Um, th this isn't that long ago. That that's the scary thing for me mm. as well. When you're talking about it, 1998, 20 years ago, um, and and some of these stories I'm sure are, are more recent than that. Um, so we are still part of that generation that that these comments seemingly are seen too often as being acceptable or banter as I think the word you, you you said that that kind of that whole banter generation that we seem to be part of that just seems to tolerate and accept yeah, these types of comments absolutely it is banter and um, or it's classed as banter and it and it kind of sweeps it's a catch-all for but I was only joking, I didn't mean it, I'm not that kind of guy or gal. And I think, you know, the, the main difference for me is kind of 20 years ago, I'd have kind of just sort of brushed it under the carpet, rolled my eyes and got on with things. Um, today I call it out. Thanks, Paul. Justine, uh, what, what have your experiences been? Um, so kind of live, talking to what Paul said, like I, when I was thinking about this, I was just thinking, you know, I, I live in a world of microaggressions. And I think one thing that I've kind of said to myself post sort of George Floyd is I'm going to actively call people out on them um, because I think it's important. But for me personally, especially being like a black woman, my hair has always been sort of a topic. So I like to change my hair often. That's very normal. You're going to work and everyone's kind of, it's a big palaver. Oh my God, you've changed your hair. Oh my God, it's a different color. It's a different length. What's going on with it? Can I touch it? No, you can't touch my hair. But then do I then, but how I respond to that because a, I'm so used to it, but it's really annoying. But if I get angry about it, then I become the angry black woman. But if I don't sort of explain myself, then I'm not helping my peers be educated on what they should and shouldn't say in response. But it's tiring to the point where I would dread going into work with a new hairstyle because I'd have to kind of go through the, the hoo-ha every single time. Um, there was a, a point at work where we everyone had to bring in um, a baby photo for some sort of kind of all hands that was happening as the only black person in my uh in EMEA I kind of rolled my eyes and what made me feel a little bit better was I just took a photo off the internet because yeah. that nobody would be able to tell if it was me or not because it would be the only black baby in the whole thing and it's just I feel like sometimes there's this lack of sort of racial sensitivity or just a think a thought about race when certain things are being done to think oh actually is this the right sort of event to do and things like that. So I've had times when, you know, you've got work trips and you're going to particular countries. I remember one of my first, one of a work trip and we went to Prague and I was talking to a colleague and he actually said to me, oh, you should probably um, keep your passport on you at all times because the police might pull you over because you're black. And I was like, wow, I was not expecting that. So I go on this work trip and I've got this like in the back of my mind, am I going to get pulled over just for being a, a black girl in Prague? And it, and it was a bit scary. And I'm not saying that, you know, every time everyone has to think about it but what I am saying is every time I always have to think about it whenever I think about going away whether it's yeah. personal or for work I think about the country I'm going to and I think am I going to be safe um and yeah 
it's different. Yeah. Alex. Yeah. What's um obviously you you and me being the two white gentlemen on the call today. Um what what, what can you add to it in terms of I guess that that, that maybe you've either seen experienced that that bias element yeah well i mean i i can't i think it's probably obvious i can't add very much right you know these are not things you know I'm, I'm a white guy from silicon valley you know i haven't experienced this personally and and you know that puts me in a you know position of, of privilege so to speak and and, and, I, and i think the 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 real the real shift is the normalization of this conversation. You know, it goes back to what we talked about before, but having this conversation on a podcast dedicated to our profession and this being a conversation that people are having with, you know, their colleagues and their friends more often is is helpful to to educate folks like me that don't experience it personally. You know, I think there's still some, you know, still this, well, it's never happened to me, therefore it doesn't exist mentality that that can permeate, you know, all things, but but certainly a professional life. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, the important thing for me, and, you know, I've obviously had quite a few conversations leading up to this, um, you know, and just generally, the important thing for me is that, you know, the only thing that is being asked of someone like me is to be cognizant and be conscious. You know, my, my, my job is easy. You know, this conversation about banter, it doesn't matter if we're joking. It matters that we're causing pain and causing harm, you know, so it's my job to make sure that things I'm saying don't do that to other people. You know, and, and to speak out and speak up when something happens, like happens in a professional setting, um, something like that happens in a professional setting, you know, and that, that compared to what we've just heard is, is the easiest job in the world, you know? So, you know, I can't contribute much, but I think what's important and what, you know, people like me, so to speak, can contribute is, is listening, understanding, being cognizant and conscious and, and also, you know, trying to, to take action um, as opposed to just kind of letting things slide. Um, because because I'm not asked to do that very often, you know, it's the least that we can do. Yeah, I agree, and and I and I'm definitely not searching for any kind of compliment with this, but but on the back of everything that that has happened over the last few months, and I didn't want this to be seen as any kind of um, knee-jerk reaction to what happened. This is a conversation that me and Paul had several months ago, but it, it felt like it it felt like it, it this conversation had to happen now, or or arguably never within my world, my environment, something that I can control and influence. And and this conversation was was never going to be easy for, for all of us for different reasons. Um, but the, the, the thing that I think Paul and Justine, when we spoke, was we have to start the conversation. I think one of you mm. said continue. For me, it, it, it's still a start of a conversation um, rather than a continue because I don't think we are having it, um, not, not to the point that I hope we're starting today. Um, yeah. So... Going back to kind of we've, we've we've gone from being quite wide and we've narrowed it down a little bit with kind of just work, um, and then I'm going to talk about customer success. Um, now I, I don't, I think I said in my introduction, I, I believe I'm part of the problem as much as I'm part of the solution. And, and what I mean by that is when I look at my 75 CSMs, yes, I'm addressing the lack of diversity, but 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 there is a lack of diversity in my team at the moment, um, and whether that is gender or whether that is race um, but both of those are things that I'm very conscious of and very aware of and want to put right um, and I'm not sure I know the answers about necessarily how to put that right and, and again I don't mind being, being vulnerable and exposing myself a, a little bit in that situation but I'm very conscious that my 75 CSMs do not contain um, enough 
black men and women um, that I would hope and expect a modern day workforce to, to have. Um, so with that, does the customer success industry have a problem? Is it a problem bigger than any other role or industry? And if it is, why is that the case? Or, or is it just part of the wider community and environment we're in within technology maybe? Um, so what are your thoughts around that? And go on, I'll, st I'll start with Alex this time. Yeah, I mean, well, let's start with tech, right? I mean, I think, you know, I alluded to it, right? The left coast of San Francisco, but I think there was a study that came out in, gosh, in mid mid June of 2020, um, that the ten of the largest tech companies in the Bay Area have literally zero black women employed, and three of those ten have literally zero black people employed. You know, and again, going back to that, you know, if you were to ask people if they think that, you know, the the you know the the progressive tech scene in San Francisco, if those stats were were true, you would have asked, you know, would have asked them where, you know, how many people we, what percentage we would have thought would be employed by those businesses. I'm sure folks would have not suggested a number so low. You know, you can't get lower than zero. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that is shocking and shows how far uh, technology, you know, has to go. Um, I think. You know, we've seen some collective action. You know, I've seen um, investors in Silicon Valley say that they're only going to be reviewing pitch decks from um, from from black investor uh, from from black founders um, in July and trying to take some action. But you know, that's is that a moment or is that a movement? You know, and and, and I think for me, we'll talk a little bit later about um, the individual steps that we can take. Because Matt, to your point, you know, certainly similarly, um, you know, I would identify myself as part of the problem as well. You know, and I think the big shift that uh, I've seen is, you know, being well-intentioned is, is not good enough, you know, taking deliberate intentional action to try and correct the, some of the status quo, you know, increasing the diversity of your talent pool, stuff like that is, is what's required here. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but from a customer success perspective, I think my, my main answer is we don't know. Um, yeah. and, and I have, uh, Matt, you and I have discussed this. I've been looking for any type of data on, um, racial diversity and customer success for a couple of months now. Um, you know, for me, one of the actions I want to take is to um, mentor underrepresented groups in customer success, you know, kind of use some of my time to, 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 to you know, take some direct action. But there's no data, literally zero data that I can find out there that, that is compelling or, or kind of, you know, statistically significant to show what that looks like at the moment. Um, I know there are some surveys out there now, actually, that were just launched that are asking that question. So I hope that that changes really quickly. The, the one, the last thing I'll say around customer success specifically is that I think we're actually in a really good place to address this and, and and I'll explain why. You know, I think the real benefit for us is that customer success didn't exist 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So it's one of those professions that, um, you know, you don't have people with 10, 15 years of customer success experience. It might be something similar, but it's not customer success. You know, so we're still in the early days of our profession. And I think that gives us an opportunity to um, invite or proactively bring more diverse pipelines of these underrepresented groups into the hiring process now, because yeah, I, we can chat about the right way to hire and years of experience, I would suggest maybe isn't the right way to hire because it does kind of bias to certain groups. But I think because customer success is being filled with people with very limited CS experience because there's so much demand and frankly, not that much supply out there, you know, generally, it gives us a really good opportunity to invite others who maybe have never heard of customer success, but will be well suited to it into the fold. Um, you know, and I think, I think because, you know, you're not talking about like sales where somebody has 15 years of experience is, is the requirement because customer success is so new. I think it gives us an opportunity to, to see impact of action that we take 
more tangibly, uh, if that makes sense. It it does, and it's at that point around um, the immaturity of the CS industry is is one that we actually touched on in my previous podcast when we were talking about gender diversity and exactly that same point. We really do have a a window of opportunity to influence this. This is probably that is probably fairly unique to our role, um, and and I don't think we can afford to obviously waste that opportunity before it gets too too ingrained, too mature that we can't actually readdress the balance. Um, Justine, uh, anything you think of in terms of the customer success industry specifically? Do we have a problem um, or is it just part of our wider wider environment? So listening to Alex, I was like nodding a lot and then I stopped nodding only because um, I do believe that it kind of falls under this umbrella of tech um, and there being underrepresentation within tech and therefore in CS. But as being someone who was, you know, made redundant due to COVID-19 and was therefore kind of looking for roles in CS, my view has always been, because we are such a, a young industry, um, experience from lots of other things you've done in the past um, will be counted for. But in my personal experience, I can't talk for everyone, was that I, I had a small feeling that when it came to customer success, because a lot of companies don't know a lot about CS, um, they then can, there sometimes can be some bias in the job specs and there can be some alien um, alienation within the job specs, kind of limiting the pool and the people that are applying for it or the people that they are um, looking at. So I was always of the assumption that because CS is new um, and that you won't find people with like loads of experience in X or have done it 10 times over, that they would be more open. But my personal experience is that it wasn't that. Now, it could just be because of COVID, you know, the, the job pool is smaller and the demand at the moment, there's a lot of people looking for work. But I was quite surprised um, in in what I found when it came for it came to looking at a role in CS um, and it changed my opinion really. And I was, um, yeah, surprised. Okay, interesting. Paul? I, um, I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that question, whether, uh, whether there's a problem specifically in customer success. But what I will say, uh, like Justine has said, and like Alex has said, is that it's a tech industry thing, right? Because that's the industry we're part of. And I think, I think we all know that that industry in general has a lot of work to do. I think, you know, Justine called out representation. Um, it, it, it always it never ceases to amaze me, right? That whatever tech organization you talk to, whether they're a huge Silicon Valley player or whether they're a tiny, funky little startup, you know, they will sell their capabilities and they'll sell their agility to meet customers' needs and deliver on those customers' needs, right? So why can't the same agility be applied to diversity, right? Just there's always a, there's always a real imbalance there. I think, um, and, and if you, you kind of maybe dig into why why that is, I think a lot of you know a lot of the organisations will say, as someone said to me uh, a few, few weeks ago, you know, Paul, I just I don't know where to find the candidates. The pipeline isn't there, and I, I, I kind of think that's you know, it's probably because you're not looking wide enough, right? Um, you know, one of the things I, I always see in the tech industry, and I see it to a degree in, in in customer success, is that whenever jobs are up there, they're they're kind of they're kind of based on on sort of qualifications and skills and experience. I mean, I spoke, I remember speaking to someone a couple of years ago at my old company, and they they only want to re recruit early in career, but come from prestigious red brick universities, right? 
Now, I live in South London in a borough called Lewisham, and I go into schools and uh, further education institutions, and I mentor in those schools. And, and in those schools are some of the brightest minds in this country. They are diverse, but those sort of people have no way of entering our industry they, because they don't know, because organisations don't look that far and wide. So, so I think you know, organisations need to move away from from the sort of functionality, the function-based job description, and they actually need to base them on, on the impact of the role because that that would uh, probably not discount so many people from considering those, those opportunities in the first place. Um, and I think the other thing that, that I see out there, and, and it's a classic, right, is that um, organizations say to their people, go and recruit from your network, right? You know where all the talented people are, bring them into our organization, help us become successful. And that's fine on one hand, but quite often a lot of those networks are not diverse, right? So it literally is perpetuating uh, even less, you know, diversity. We're seeing even less as a result of that. So it's spot on, Paul. Just just to jump in there, it's I, I kind of was taking some notes in advance of this conversation, and the the danger of the referral from my network bias is is such a real challenge. You know, I mean, companies will pay you to refer from your network, but if the company's 90% white, well, your network is maybe similarly composed, you yeah. know, and it, it perpetuates that that's a perpetuation of the, 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 the issue. And, you know, perpetuation similarly is recruiting from colleges that have a similar, similar racial makeup or universities, I should say for, for, um, uh, across the pond, our, our UK audience, but, um, you're spot on. And, and, and I, I similarly reflecting, you know, you have Apple that builds this headquarters that looks, you know, like something looks like a spaceship. Um, he has all the money in the world, and ironically, is probably the biggest provider of those cameras that capture these incidents on video now, right? Yeah. Yet we're not able to, uh, you know, to deliver a company-wide initiative um, of of actively shifting, you know, shifting the the, the mix and shifting the the focus. Um, and, 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 you know, the juxtaposition that, 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 that comes to my mind and, and bear with me because it's a bit of a half-baked thought, but, you know, we talk about customer success needs to be a company culture and you can't have one leader or team responsible. Um, it has to be company-wide. And, you know, similarly, you see these big tech companies that will appoint a chief diversity and inclusion officer. But, you know, is that if, if it's not a company-wide mandate, you know, you're not able to, to really drive that change. And that's exactly what we've seen you know um so i still have hope but but evidence suggests that uh there's a lot more to do certainly yeah i agree and in terms of doing more it's a good segue onto i guess maybe the the, the final topic to cover before we wrap up um i, I started the question and, I, and I've, I've typed it in front of me in terms of what are you or, or your company doing to change this um I, i'm going to probably try and be a little bit more specific around what what are the things that each of you three want the millions that listen to this podcast to do differently um, <laughs> when they unplug their, their, their headphones or their earplugs. Um, what, what action do you think people can do easily, practically, tomorrow? Um, Paul? I knew you were going to come and ask me first. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, I think look, there are some really simple things that people can do as part of their everyday, day-to-day um, -day working lives, you know, especially if they're recruiting talent. Um, I think you should really have a look at the referral mechanisms within your organizations, right? Because if those organizations, if those, if those networks aren't going to generate diverse talent, 
then you know how can you make that better i think some of the things um i mean i don't know whether you guys are, are familiar with the concept of affinity bias right it's an unconscious we naturally gravitate and and support people yeah. who are like us they go to the same schools as us they speak our languages right um in the interview process there's a lot of peer influencing that takes place in that you know you go through you go through a group of uh, you go through an interview with with perhaps the leadership team of an organization you're joining and then you'll go on to the you know the, the final interview with the hiring manager and that person will drop into an internal tool and look at what everyone else has said and that may influence uh, some of their decision making so again i think that's something to look at because if if anybody in your group of interviewers it has biases and they are there and you pick those up those could be influencing your decision making and i think you know i think in that process i think you know actually i think the talent teams together with the the, the hiring team should be asking themselves in process um where did bias show up or where could bias show up because i think by evaluating that process while it's happening it will help you better understand so so from a working perspective that you know that's what i would suggest on a on a sort of a personal level i think you know i think anyone can and sorry to broaden it out but i think i, I just i can't underestimate the importance of just getting educated on the subject right because um you know there's nothing that's more naff in my opinion than listening to someone make comments about race or racial equality um without any knowledge awareness experience insight or empathy there's a lot of material out there so you know dig in and i would say to anyone that's listening to this anyone that's on my network if you really want to talk about it and learn more find me and i'll help you i think that's awesome paul and i think that the education piece i'm glad you touched on that because i know when we've spoken before um i since have found out wrongly that I class myself as relatively well educated based on uh, a pretty diverse group of friends um, but but my knowledge and experiences is has been very much on the surface and, and, and what I see and what is very obvious actually what the death of George Floyd enabled me to do was to have some pretty direct conversations with my friends um, around my lack of knowledge um, and so since the 25th of May I've gone out of my way to, to educate myself to a, a greater depth than, than, than I was before. So in, in the UK, we've had, um, uh, I think it was on Sky, the programme around the, the Rivers of Blood speech by um, Enoch Powell, um, which is very close to you geographically, um, uh, that happened in the late 60s um, in Birmingham. I, I was actually alive when that took place, but not old enough to remember it. Yeah, um, and that program is is available on Sky Catch Up still, um, and that was hugely educational for me. Um, you recommended a couple of books to read. I, I've just finished reading the book by um, Jennifer uh, Aberhart called Biased, which I found hugely enlightening. Um, so I can recommend books, TV programs. Paul, you've called out that you're happy to um, as well. So, J Justine. Um, Anything that you would like to kind of give as advice or things that people may want to do or can do or companies, what companies may want to look at? Well, I'm very kind of aligned with what Paul's been, Paul's been, Paul's been, say, Paul's been saying is just to try and be as open-minded as possible and know, understand that when it comes to diversity, it needs to be 
everywhere. It can't just be in one section. It can't just even be based on what a person looks like. It needs to be about their experience or their education. Need to be open to the differences in the backgrounds that could come with somebody who is more um, diverse. Um, and Paul's already doing it, sort of mentoring, um, and has done that awesome kind of call to action. Should anyone need to get in touch and talk about it? And I know Alex, you spoke about wanting to do like mentoring, and it was something that I had definitely been thinking about, just following on from sort of my recent experience over the last few months, and also just actively wanting to help with diversity in CS. Um, so I'm definitely looking at ways that I can kind of mentor sort of people who are trying to get into CS for the first time, especially those wanting to kind of join startups and not really knowing how to, to do it. I'd definitely be opening to, to have those sort of conversations with people. Um, finally, Alex, um, you obviously touched um, on something that you personally want to do. You spoke about a, a couple of things, the mentoring, um, the visibility around better quality data that allows us to talk maybe more uh, more informatively around around this topic. Um, anything that you want to kind of talk about in terms of either what you think people can do, what you want to do, what your company does or what you want them to yeah. do? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned in, in, in some previous answers, but, you know, I think the um, uh, firstly, you know, the referral for my network bias being a, a real challenge and, and more actively trying to kind of not push that and not kind of, you know, t reach out to people who I may, who may be in my network, but rather kind of let, you know, the experts in the higher, you know, experts in the recruitment department um, source a, a talent pool and work with them to, to say, you know, I want to source from maybe non-traditional sources, you know, if to the point you made earlier, if it all comes from tech, it's, it's not going to be very diverse. You know, and, and, you know, anecdotally, the best people I can, I can tell you, the, the best people that I've hired have no, had no tech and very, and, and no customer success experience. And they've turned out to be phenomenal CSMs, um, you know, because they had transferable skills, you know, so anecdotally, that's definitely something that's worth doing. Um, you know, and, and, and to the point I made earlier, customer success is, it, it's, it's important for us to do this now, you know, it's not too late, so to speak, to kind of be in a because it's so new uh, be in a place where where you know we need to invite others into the fold now before the years of experience kind of gap becomes too too wide the, the one other thing that, that that you know i've thought about is i'm just about to embark on a, a big buying cycle for a bunch of customer success technology so um you know customer success platform community platform i'm sure i'm going to get a lot of um, linkedin messages to those vendors that are listening but um uh, oops. Um, but, you know, for me, I don't see why we were talking about, you know, Apple and big tech in San Francisco, you know, being able to create, you know, computers in your pocket um, and do so many exciting things, but not really tackle this issue in a real demonstrable way. Um, and that those two things not really computing uh, for me in RFPs when I'm preferring procuring technology, you know, I don't see why it's um, um, outrageous to include a question about diversity of their management team and of their board. And normalizing that, normalize that being a question that we ask when we procure software, do business with others, you know, because ultimately I, I have a budget to spend and that may not completely influence the decision I'm making, you know, maybe I'll fully just will decide on the merits of the technology, but normalizing that as a question that puts more pressure from a monetary perspective on, on technology companies. I think it's something that we can all do. It's very subtle, but hopefully pushes that envelope so that we don't just give that lip, lip service, but we actually kind of show that that's something that we care about as, you know, with our dollars, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that, that, so, that again is something yeah, go ahead, we, I was just going to say that is something again that came up in the the gender diversity um, podcast and webinar that I did recently where I think more and more buyers of um, 
of all services, um, never mind software and technology, um, we'll start looking for those numbers to um, show that they are buying from a company and maybe from a, a board or a leadership team yeah. of, a, of a wide range of backgrounds. And that isn't necessarily just stopping at what it was then the conversation I was having was very much around gender but maybe that does expand into into race as well absolutely now you're spot on and just the, the last thing more generally Matt to say you know for, for me obviously I'm you know learning on this call I don't experience I don't have these experience these personal experiences that I carry with me you know I but I think you know for for maybe folks in my position who um you know, I, I think it's important for folks that maybe don't have this experience to, to be open and to listen and to be to be comfortable being uncomfortable, which I know is a bit of a cliche phrase. But, you know, I think in business, it's not good. It's seen as not good to be unaware of an answer. Right. You want to know the answer in, in a business context. And, you know, this is one that Matt, probably you and I don't certainly I would suggest don't know answers. You know, we it's our job to listen and to understand and 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 um, uh, improve and support. You know, I, but I just think there's this real juxtaposition of everybody wanting to know the answer in a business context, and maybe that not being the appropriate response for for allies in this. You know, and and I think we we need to be open about that as well. Yeah, agreed. Look, we're um we're we're past six o'clock in the UK. I did warn the all three of you that we might go over my time in. They're not usually great, um, but I think it's a topic that deserves as as much time as we can afford to give, and we've given it um coming up to kind of fifty five minutes. So, um, I am going to wrap up there. Um, I hope for the people that choose to listen, um, this has been informative and educational. Um, and I hope if nothing else, it allows you to look at yourselves, look at the environments and families and groups of friends that you're part of and see if you can change something, however small it is, to make the world that we're, we're currently living in and, and the world that I'm bringing a young family into um, a better place. Um, so I will wrap up. So Alex, Paul, Justine, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it hugely. Um, if anybody wants to reach out to any of you, I think all three of you kind of said that you're, you're happy to some extent to, to obviously do that and educate and help people understand and learn. Um, then obviously I think probably LinkedIn is probably the best thing. Um, so the profiles of all three of you will be in my um, post that I will get out there on LinkedIn and on my website. So people may contact you if they want to discuss this further but again thank you all three of you for your time today hey guys thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the gain grow retain podcast if you liked what you heard please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe we really appreciate it talk to you soon